and welcome to Rising. We have an absolutely fantastic show planned for you today. And if the set looks a little bit different, we're still dealing with some minor technical issues, but things should be back to normal uh, shortly. So bear with us uh, with that, but we still have the same content. So it matters not, Alimi. And you said you thought it looks just fine. Yeah, it feels like nighttime news. <laughs> we have some updates to go over with you on the Highland Park Massacre. Robert Cremo, the 22-year-old accused of killing now seven people and wounding dozens of others in the Chicago neighborhood's 4th of July parade, is being charged with seven counts of first-degree murder. So it turns out that he had been investigated by the local police before. So often this early uh, chatter is wrong. They had had contact with him, despite what the initial report said. In 2019, officers had responded after someone reported that Cremo had tried to kill himself. And a few months later, they came to his home seizing a knife collection after a family member reported he had pledged to, quote, kill everyone. Despite the red flags, reports confirm that Cremo purchased five guns, five guns in total legally, including the rifle used in the massacre. And the details here are kind of interesting because, so everybody's thinking, well, why if the police had come to his home because he threatened to kill himself and others and confiscated a collection of knives, well, then how and why was he able to purchase a gun? Shouldn't that have come up in background checks? But it sounds like um, two things. One, because there were no charges actually filed. No one wanted to press charges against him. Um, I, I guess it didn't become like a matter of public record or mm -hmm. something that would be picked up. And also his father, so he was not old enough, I guess, to purchase these guns on his own, but his father sponsored like his request to get the right permit. <laughs> the, um, father of the, the father of the boy that threatened to kill his own family sponsored Swan did the right. permit for him to get the guns. Right. And and thus I, I think incurs some potential liability mm -hmm. uh for for actions taken with these guns. Mm -hmm. So that will be something to look out for whether the that gets the, the dad um in trouble. Obviously that was a really, really, really terrible lapse of judgment. Um I don't know that but like if somebody else mm -hmm. is going to irresponsibly procure you weapons yeah like that's the exact kind of uh, of issue that like how do we we can't get around that because that could always happen do you know what i mean do we know that the father purchased all five guns including the one he used for the massacre i'm not i i, I believe so yeah i believe so listen so he could have just done you know this the the dad had a clean record he could have mm -hmm. purchased guns anywhere at any time and then just had them in the home mm -hmm. for and for this kid to use them because, because obviously I don't think someone who has who has expressed the you know violent uh, tendencies yeah. the way this individual did the Cremo the, the kid yeah it, not he's not a kid the 22 year old the the, the shooter You're right uh, it, it's a the, the dad is junior he's the third the dad is junior and the grandfather is senior so it's it's a, the terminology um, he should not I I think I am. Even though I'm a robust supporter of the Second Amendment, I am perfectly comfortable saying he should not have been allowed to purchase yeah. um, weapons, given that the police had to confiscate knives from his home after he threatened to harm people. Yeah. But then the question becomes, well, what is the, how, what is the right law that actually prevents that? Because you would want a background check to pick up something like this, but if right. no one actually presses charges or the police don't, but, or the police decide just like, well, oh well. But I think that, that there is a beautiful point. Um, 
because it, it shows a reflection on how our system handles these things. I don't know anybody. I represent tons of people that are arrested for far less. The fact that the police, it's not about whether or not mm. the complainant presses the charges. There is a myth that we perpetuate all over the world, <laughs> all over our media and everywhere, that it's about whether you press the charges. That's not the case. If someone makes an accusation to the police, it's the police in the prosecutor's office that actually decide whether or not to press charges. And they very often remind you that when people say they don't want to. So why in this case, why when this, then this white boy is accused of doing the things that the police opt not to press the charges. I, I wonder why that's mm. the case in the first place. So I do think but there is some level of police failure. Sometimes they only do it if the people, if the, the quote-unquote victims yeah, want it, right? Yeah, but there should very, I mean, not, not really, not in my, not in my, not in my experience. M lots of, lots of my cases, there is a complainant even sitting in court saying they don't want the charges, and they still really regularly. Mm. The amount of orders of protection and charges that the prosecutor has gone forward with, despite the fact that we have the complainant sitting right there saying no, is unbelievable. I, I would say. First of all, I think, I think that this is some level of a policing failure. I'm not going to, even if I were prepared to give the police a pass on the first arrest or not, maybe when he was called, they were called because he was threatening a threat to himself. I don't think that an arrest should have been made there. But I do think some kind of domestic incident, some kind of history, some kind of report should have been made. But by the second time a call is made and you have to come and get knives and that the whole family, um, he's accused, he's, he's threatened to kill the entire family. Why wasn't an arrest made there? Why wasn't a domestic incident um, report made there? I think there should be, there should have been some kind of monitoring over the situation. In the case of his father being able to buy these guns, you already know, this is, y'all have come now to go deal with this boy twice. You know that he's a threat to his family. You know there's some kind of dynamics there. Assuming the family doesn't want to press charges, that still, to me, gives you a reason to kind of monitor the situation, be aware, right. see what's happening. So I do think it's a policing failure to some degree. Not the biggest policing failure, I'll give them well, this is and this yeah. is what we want when we talk about we've talked about red flag laws on yes. the show uh, quite a bit, and this is the scenario where you want the red flag law to kick in. Right. But obviously, that that requires someone else to 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 contact police and say there are red flags. Right. Someone like the dad in this role, but not only did they not do that, yeah. they overlooked the right. the, the, the or they, they knew about the signs and and. Bought and purchased and had weapons in the home and then purchased weapons Straw for purchase. him specifically. Yeah, you know, Which we is have just really reckless behavior and we're never gonna we're never gonna ultimately criminalize or prevent just wildly reckless behavior. Abs yeah, I mean I think it's absolute reckless recklessness and negligence. I don't know. My understanding of it was that these guns were legally purchased by him. I don't know the the parameters on what his what his father's role in? Did yeah. he buy them all? Did he know? I I have to know more of it to really make make my condemnations. For now, if I'm assuming it's the father who bought them, then yeah, I can't see necessarily how the red flag laws would have right. prevented those if the father's making these straw purchases. But just based on the fact that the media continuously reports these as legal purchases, and straw purchases would not be, they would not fall under that parameter of legal purchases. It leads me to believe he probably did have a direct role in purchasing some of these guns. At which point, that is a policing failure. That is a failure of people to abide by these laws. So. Mm. Well, we want to play Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris's uh, reaction. She's speaking from the scene of the shooting. Let's watch that. We got to take this stuff seriously, as seriously as you are, because you have been forced to have to take it seriously. The whole nation should understand and have a level of empathy to understand that this can happen anywhere in any peace-loving community, and we should stand together and speak out. About why it's got to stop. Madam Vice President. Thank you. 
she's being criticized uh, for some of her phrasing there, using the word seriously in her speech over and over again, which is something she tends to do in her speeches. She says, she repeats the same thing for over emphasis and over again. To her, to her, you know, I'm not no big Kamala fan. No, I, I'm not, I, I'm not I, a I huge know. Kamala fan. I tend to have criticism of Kamala, especially when she speaks out after incidents, because she has a tendency to either say something empty or not help. You know what she I mean? She says things that are so empty. Yes. That are just, like, she has one job, <laughs> and that is to speak effectively yes. or to communicate effectively what the administration's view of matters is. Yes. She is a liability. She doesn't do it well. I mean, it's not, doesn't matter. It's not very important because right. she's the vice president. The vice president doesn't have to much to honest, do. To be honest, her and Biden both do a pretty bad job. Well, Bi- right, Biden's terrible, but she should be covering for him, and it, it, she's almost worse. <laughs> he because ha- he has the like. Yeah, I, I'm way too old to be doing this <laughs> kind of excuse. But she is not a natural and effective public speaker. No, she's not. She's not. Um, you know, listen. I'm gonna. I'm gonna give. Give Kama a little bit of credit. This isn't her worst. This definitely well, it wasn't it's her not worst. worst. Yeah. It's not her worst. The other day, what, after what, what was the uh, that day? Uh, today is the day, and that day is every day. <laughs> yes. Something like that. Or, That's or, my or the sit down after row where she's like, "Well, what do you what do you want us to do?" Oh, codify. So it's not the worst. <laughs> it's not the worst. I think. Uh, I, in fairness, sorry, let me give a little bit of credit. I can see where the need to emphasize seriously because there are a lot of people that minimize the reality of these mass shootings, and maybe you know she wants to call the public but I just I even in me trying to defend her it just it wasn't a particularly rousing speech no it it was a major miscalculation by the Biden administration I mean I've said this a million times and you're right this isn't the I guess this isn't the the very most compelling example but she just doesn't bring anything to the ticket they and she's she's by virtue of being the vice president she's his most logical successor yeah and why they didn't think through this we are choosing the front runner to be the next, you know, major Democratic person whenever Joe Biden is is through, and they just they just I don't know they just checked off some boxes. But but as, but Bree said this uh, many times. Brianna said this many times on the, on the show. I think you share this view that she's not even necessarily popular among no, she's not. black people. She's not. So. She's 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 not. You know, listen, I don't want to... Biden is, but she's not. I, and you're right. And, not old, all, and that's old all, black yeah. people, right? Um, but in, in Kamala's case, I've said this from the jump, Kamala is a career prosecutor, so she doesn't appeal to leftists and progressives of today, right? There's a time, I think maybe 15 years ago, Kamala would have had a different perception in politics from the national stage than she has now. But she didn't appeal to us for that reason, which is the reason she got knocked out of the presidential election super early. She could not appeal to her own base. She didn't get the, that support from the black community. So I would love to say I don't know why they went ahead and chose her, but I do know they because she's a black woman, so she gives the appearance of diversity and it's this win. And I'm not saying that's not a good thing. Representation, cool. But insofar as this person is substantively right. not what we are looking for, you know that we don't rally around her, and you know you already have this moderate centrist guy that we are not particularly excited about. I don't know why you would then go and get a career prosecutor that even black people are not excited about. I don't know. But I'm going to let her rock. She's already in. And, you know, she, she does me the courtesy if she doesn't do anything substantive to upset me these days. Very once in a blue moon. The, she comes out and says something best, not particularly uh, compelling. I'm going to let her have it. I'm going to let her the have best it. That's she can do. Well, I'm sure we'll have more to say about Kamala Harris uh, soon. And, of course, we'll continue to follow 
um, updates on this, you know, yet another uh, horrific uh, mass shooting. Yeah, I, I want to understand. I want to learn more about the process yeah. for how these these guns are actually per and who has to vouch for you. And, right. and of course, the laws different. What, the, what state, their background but, check um, situation is. But I do believe. Listen, I think if if you have these red flag laws in place, there should be background checks and these things in place. It should be where you run this person's name. If the police had done due diligence, they had made reports, they had made even if they didn't make arrests, because I'm never in favor of expanding the criminal system right. unnecessarily. But there should have been some documentation that this is the issue. He should have been barred. And so these things should pop up, but I don't know the specifics. Yeah. So, all right, Alimi, I will have a radar for everybody next. So stay tuned for that. Recently on Rising Fridays, Ryan and Emily spoke with investigative reporter at the Washington Examiner, Andrew Kerr, about new leaked audio recordings from the Hunter Biden laptop discussing his influence over his father, Joe. Let's listen. Um, anything that I wanted to, that he believes in, if I say this is important to me, mm. then he will work a way in which to make it a part of his, of his platform. Mm. My dad respects me more than he respects anyone in the world, and I know that to be certain. Mm. So it is not gonna be about whether my dad thinks it's going to affect his politics. It, no, it won't. It's not gonna be whether or not he's gonna be embarrassed of me. He never will. Mm. It's not gonna, I'm, all of those concerns that you have with all of the people that you know, mm. that are in the, that are the children of, mm. I have none of them. We then discussed on our show how much more leaked audio is implicating President Joe Biden in his son's foreign business dealings. Let's listen to that. And it's 8.15 um, on uh, Wednesday night. If you get a chance, give me a call. Not, nothing urgent. just want to talk to you. I thought the article, at least the thing on online, is going to be printed tomorrow in the Times. was good. I think it's clear. And uh, anyway... Um, if you get a chance, give me a call. I love you. This is a major. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre answered questions on that matter. Let's watch. And then on a different topic, why is there a voicemail of the president talking to his son about his overseas business dealings if the president has said he's never spoken to his son about his overseas business dealings? Well, first I'll say that... Uh... What the president said stands. So, if he, if that's what the president said, that he, that is what stands. And He's second, secondly, New York Times but secondly, concerning secondly, business dealings, and here, he says, I think you're clear. How is that not him talking to his son about his overseas business dealings? We're not from this podium. I am not going to talk about alleged materials from the laptop. So I will. I'm not. Voice on the I am not going to talk about alleged materials on the laptop. Are it's you not happening. Then that it is. Not Peter, I refer you to uh, to his son's representative. Okay. Good. I mean, alleged materials. Come on, it's we can't still. I can't believe they're still playing this game with like the laptop. If it exists and if it's real, we know it exists. I still we can't know believe you're talking about real. the laptop. <laughs> well, we're well, we're talking uh, talking about it in part because we continue to find new interesting things on it that further elucidate the relationship, the connection between Hunter Biden and his father, 
Uh, we want to know whether there was something improper, uh, whether we, we know basically for certain that Hunter Biden was attempting to leverage his relationship with his dad in terms of these foreign dealings. That's pretty much established. Uh, the question is, how much was Joe Biden a witting participant in that, if at all? And that, I think, is still an open question. But when they say something like, well, he had no knowledge of any of this, but then you play a recording of him calling his son to talk about it and say, oh, looks like everything's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, that, I think that's a perfectly valid question to ask the press secretary. Does that contradict what Biden said about that earlier? And then and her answer was just like, well, if we even know that it's real, we know that it's real. It's confirmed that it's real. They tried to play it. That's what they did from the start. They being Team Biden and their allies in the media and their allies in the in the intelligence community. Remember the the 40 or however many officials saying was, oh, this is a Russian disinformation propaganda episode. Yeah, it's true. It's real. It actually exists. The information on it is real. You can you can do whatever you want with it. You can say it doesn't change my opinion of Joe Biden or it, it you know it maligns Hunter Biden but not Joe. Whatever, that's fine. But you can't you can't still pretend that like Russia did this, which is what right. which is I'm what not... I hear from her when she says Listen, that. A lot of things can be true. <laughs> Let's discuss all the things that can be true. It's real, right? Okay, the laptop yes. is real. We got it. Yes. Uh, two. It's a lie. He lied, right? They, they asked him whether or not he knew about his, his son's dealings. He said, no, that's a lie, right? Yeah. He knows. Three, uh, that's a bad answer from her, but she's also in the position where it's her job to, to I guess, defend and speak for the president. And she's, she's back in. the press secretary's right, job. She's backed into a corner, so I'll, I'll let her rock. Um, as, far as, as far as it goes, honestly, listen, I understand that people especially on the right, are very fixated on, on, on this Hunter Biden's laptop, just like they were very fixated on Hunter Biden himself. It just does not do it for me in interest level. Like, what are, what are we learning? That Biden is close to his son, he loves his son, he'll do anything. We knew. I knew. It's not, it's not particularly revolutionary. The last president we had that I think is <laughs> morally bankrupt, unethical by all means, has had all the accusations, currently dealing with him and his relation to an insurrection, had his children in administration. It's not really, you know, I get it. I think if we were having a general conversation about nepotism, how they have their children involved in all these things, that criticism can be made. I am not, you know, I am not somebody who is cheerleading for Joe Biden. So it's mm-hmm. not me trying to make a defense of him at all. I just don't think this is particularly compelling. I get it. I heard it. It's real. But what did we hear? The first audio is Hunter Biden saying, my daddy loves me. My daddy is not embarrassed of me. My daddy will care about what I got going on. Yeah, that's usually. Look, I I will agree that the anti the principled anti-nepotism voter doesn't have a great alternative to turn to in (laughs) terms of the 2020 election. Because, yes, the Trump children were even in the administration. And, yes, they have a lot of interesting um, dealings, including like a very public kind of relationship with Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Uh, all that said, I don't, I, I, it's still, Yeah. we still want to know. We deserve to know. We need to know, we can know the extent to which Biden was, if it, maybe, maybe the answer is no. Maybe yeah. he didn't know. Maybe, yeah. maybe he, but now we, we and, may, and, and listen, and maybe he did. It does just, look like there was some, let, I, he was involved right in the, or, or maybe distantly when Hunter Biden was in charge of, what, Amtrak yeah. or whatever it was? Like, listen, that was totally inappropriate. And maybe, and, and listen, totally maybe it was. I am not going to defend him on those grounds. It is very possible. By, Joe Biden has done tons of things I disapprove of that I think are, you know, incorrect, and not mm-hmm. just in terms of morally, but in terms of what he should be doing in the role he plays. And should it turn out, you know, that he did something untoward? 
cool, let the, let the criticism fly. I'm an equal opportunity hater. But what I'm saying is, I just don't think what we've heard so far is particularly compelling enough for why we keep beating this horse down yeah. on what we're getting from the laptop. We get it. We know it. Y'all don't like Biden. By, uh, Hunter Biden is a little bit of, he's a problem child. We, we know. He's, I mean, the more, for me, the bigger issue is how this story was so rejected from the get-go by by certain because of the motivations i think the motivations i think the right first i just think the right you weren't allowed to post the story the initial story about the laptop was was erased from social media at the urging i don't disagree with you intelligence officials you know i don't disagree with you and the way they've managed social media is wild i don't agree with the federal government's role it tries to take on oh we should have committees we should censor this we should edit i don't obviously whether it be democrats or republicans i think uh massive governmental control and government trying to suppress stories and viewpoints is always a dangerous game because the government has a motivation it just does so i'm in alignment with you there i just think in terms of why just in terms of general sentiment why you see disinterest on terms of the left is because the motivation is just feel disingenuous and it just doesn't feel that um, exciting or compelling of a Biden criticism. I think there are lots, but this particular one, especially in virtue to who else we had that we just dealt with, like for those reasons above, it just doesn't move me now. But I agree with you. I I agree that they can discover they have a right to look into this story if they want. They have a right to, to just discuss it and they have a right to criticism should they, criticize him should they find uh, more evidence of lies. And I think call him out. It was a lie, right? He said he didn't know about right, it. Right, that there's a there's a rich a banquet of reasons <laughs> to be dissatisfied with Joe Biden. Exactly. It, you know, if you want to skip the meat and go straight to dessert, that's fine. <laughs> yes. uh, I don't really know where I'm going with this analogy. I think now. it's so a salad. It, right? You think this is the salad? <laughs> it's yes. the appetizer. Right. The, yeah, the, the salad. The, beef, the roast beef is is the inflation. Yes. Is the, is, yes. Is absolutely. Yes, Robbie, we right here. Um, yeah, so I'll have a second helping of that. I don't know why. I'm, what am I doing? I love it. Why, Listen, where did this come I from? I love alignment. I, I like, okay. so I'll take the analogy, Robbie. All right. Well, we'll continue to follow, of course, any new developments in the Hunter Biden laptop uh, story. <laughs> and we'll have more rising right after this. So, Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, throughout the pandemic, no one languished under more frustrating restrictions than our nation's children, even though it was well established, even early on, that COVID-19 largely harmed the elderly and spared most healthy young people. U.S. governments, at the behest of federal health officials, forced schools to close anyway. In many parts of the country, class instruction was virtual for an entire year. And when kids were allowed to return to school finally, many of them, they had to continue wearing masks. Now, there's very little evidence that school mask mandates had an impact on COVID-19 case counts. Indeed, experts now concede that only the highest quality masks are doing very much at all to keep the spread down. One clear effect of the masks is that for some people, it's much harder to understand what other people are saying. This was certainly true in schools. National Teachers Union boss Randy Weingarten knows it in her heart because she removed her mask during a meeting in order to be better understood by the people around her. But publicly, she advocated keeping schools closed for as long as possible and for keeping kids masked for as long as possible. Indeed, if it were up to her, students would still face restrictions until the country reached COVID zero, which, by the way, is never going to happen. Weingarten is a key ally of President Joe Biden. The president defers to her on all sorts of education issues. When Biden picked Miguel Cardona to be his education secretary, Jill Biden, Jill Biden, explicitly noted that this was done with approval from Randy Weingarten and Becky Pringle, who is also a teachers union leader. Watch. Secretary Cardona, 
as you know, my husband made a promise to educators across America that his Secretary of Education would be a leader who taught in a public school classroom. And he found that in you. Right, Randy? Right, Becky? Was our promise. All right, so that's all background for the subject of today's radar. Yesterday afternoon, Joe Biden tweeted this. Due to the pandemic, kids are behind in math and reading. We know how to help bridge this gap. I'm calling on schools to use American Rescue Plan funds to expand tutoring, summer learning, and after-school programs, and to provide 250,000 more tutors and mentors for our kids. Now, let's be clear. The pandemic indirectly caused kids to fall behind in reading and math. Kids who catch COVID, well, they get sick. Most of them, just a little sick, unless they have underlying health conditions. They don't get worse at math. The reason that pandemic era kids are lagging in reading and math is because for many of them, virtual education was a wholly inadequate experience. Some learned absolutely nothing from it. Working class families struggled to make sure their kids logged onto their laptops or kept up with their assignments. Students from more challenging backgrounds couldn't engage with the material through a computer screen. Others were so depressed from no longer seeing their friends or participating in extracurricular activities, they tuned out the academic part of school entirely. And when they did get back into the classroom, masks made learning ever so much harder for many kids, particularly those who have learning disabilities. Keep in mind that in New York City, children under the age of five were forced to wear masks in school until June 13th. They've been unmasked for less than a month. That's the level of punitive COVID caution forced on young children by public health officials and government education bureaucrats. So let's not deflect responsibility onto the virus. Kids are falling behind in reading and math because of the policies supported by President Biden, other Democrats, and teachers unions. Now, Biden's solution is to use American Rescue Plan funds to pay for tutoring for kids. To that I say, okay, fine. If we're going to spend that money on something, I suppose that's a legitimate use for it. But let's not pretend that a lack of funding is what's holding back public schools. Contrary to what many progressive Democrats frequently claim, public schools are very well funded. They're better funded each and every year. As Corey DeAngelis, a former colleague of mine at Reason Magazine, has often noted, quote, on average, the United States currently spends over $15,000 per student each year, and inflation-adjusted K-12 education spending per student has increased by 280% since 1960. If you don't believe me or DeAngelis, take it from the Washington Post. In 2019, WAPO ran an op-ed by Robert Pianta, Dean of the School of Education at the University of Virginia. The subhead of the piece was, the one thing we haven't tried in the past 30 years is sufficiently investing in our schools. Okay, shortly after publishing the piece, WAPO was forced to add this correction. An earlier version of this piece stated that adjusting for constant dollars, public funding for schools has decreased since the late 1980s. This is not the case. In fact, funding at the federal, state, and local levels has increased between the 1980s and 2019. So the claim that we've decreased funding for public education over time is so flagrantly wrong, even the Washington Post had to correct it. Separately, it is concerning that the dean of a school of education wasn't familiar with the general trajectory of public education funding, but I digress. Now look, it's important to note that the massive increases in funding have not actually improved student math and reading school scores. As this chart from the Cato Institute shows, now, and this was in 2010, today we're spending even more on education, with even less to show for it. Why Biden would expect the American Rescue Plan to do the trick, 
That's anyone's guess. Now, the alternative to funding schools is not to defund schools or to give up, but to fund students. Think about it. No matter how much money we throw at public school districts, the results are disappointing. So why not just give the money back to the families and let them use it to pay for whatever education option they think is right for their individual kid? Just imagine if every kid received a check for $15,000 each year and could use it to pay for or supplement their education. Doesn't that make more sense than giving the money to the schools and just sort of hoping that this time they figure it out, even though they never have before? On every other issue, progressives understand the liberating power of just giving money directly to the people, rather than forcing them to jump through cumbersome hoops to qualify for financial assistance with housing, food, medical care, etc. Just cut them checks. But when it comes to education, many Democrats, and Joe Biden chief among them, want to keep throwing money at a failing system. Help the children, not the education bureaucracy. Just give the people the money. That's my idea for what to do with the rest of the American Rescue Plan funds, because it just hasn't. So first, I think it's important to establish that, like, look, COVID was not what made kids worse at math and reading. It was our policy response. That was on us. You might say, and you can, it's perfectly fine to argue that, and people can disagree on how much of what we did was necessary uh, because people were dying. Mm -hmm. I think the restrictions for schools and for young people went on far longer than necessary, given that we knew fairly early on that young people, by and large, do not have very shockingly negative um, COVID health outcomes, that we, we were not weighing the trade-offs of having kids like at home for a year versus in-school learning. Um, that's one thing. And then the second thing is, I just don't, you know, fine, spend this money however you want, but no matter how much money we spend on the school system, we haven't gotten better results yet. So I would just give it back to the families. Okay, so. So hit me, Alimi, what do you think? I will concede that uh, virtual virtual schooling uh, does negatively impact uh, children's ability to learn. I think that is undisputed, we know that. But I do think the reality was, we're in a pandemic where people were dying. And yes, children and younger people might not be as impacted by COVID directly, but children don't live alone, okay? Children have parents, children have families, there are teachers, there are principals, there are lots of other people that are in fact um, at risk of COVID. And in New York City specifically, I could use as an example, we saw lots of death, principals, all kinds of principals, especially in the Bronx and Brooklyn in these uh, areas with a lot of black and brown people, we saw lots of deaths of teachers and principals. So there was a very, very real concern and that's what people were speaking to. And unfortunately, when you are in a pandemic and you have to figure out how to avoid deaths and do your best, there are going to be some negative negative impacts of that. And I do think that's what you're seeing in terms of uh, the effects on children learning in their education in terms of the, uh, the pandemic. So I don't knock Biden. I don't have criticism for Biden saying, OK, let's put more money into tutoring and doing these things and bridging this gap. I don't think it, to me, matters whether or not it's the pandemic or the result of trying to deal with the pandemic. Um, and then in terms of uh, the mask. Listen, I know how you feel about the masks, Robbie. <laughs> I know how you feel about the masks, Robbie. I really don't like them. Listen, but I'm going to let the people in, in, this, in this particular situation speak for their own selves. Teachers, teachers and students all over this country literally protested to have masks. They, were, they wanted the masks. They wanted these um, policies in schools. They were very, very in favor of that. So I can't call this punitive oppression that people had to wear masks, especially when they themselves wanted them. Well, they some, want, well, a, lot of, a lot of them wanted these precautions. They wanted it. And third, I want to say this in terms of New York City, because uh, you said it's not a, a matter of lack of public funding and we have public funding uh, increase in terms of the schools. Ah. 
New York City, there was a billion dollar cut to our to our, uh, our public school education system. And we're seeing literally right now, they're in the middle of laying off teachers, laying um, cutting uh, all kinds of programs and stuff because your boy Eric Adams, who you like that he lifted the mask, He's the one who cut. I don't. I know. I'm not giving yeah, Eric I, Adams any credit whatsoever. He lifted it a month ago. Yeah. He, he should have lifted it. It should have never existed well, in the first place. He lifted it a month no, ago no and then he cut a billion dollars from the New York City public he school cut system. A billion dollars. From he cut two. He cut. Two hundred million dollars, and the rest that was allocated from federal from federal funding and spending they had left. He, so that's he extra money they were going to get, and then they decided to do something. Else. And that's gone. not a, the the total money they're getting they never goes it. down. They, never goes down. They lost. The expected increase is sometimes not as large they as lost, they expected to be. They've lost a billion dollars, but overall, and and Eric Adams himself specifically cut over two hundred million dollars. So this, there are in fact cuts to the public edu education school system, and we are seeing the effects of those cuts in losing teachers and losing programs and losing uh, all these different arts and enrichment programs so but my major point is why I, I'm I'm agree so let's fund public mm -hmm. education sure mm -hmm. but why does public education have to be administered by the government the government is bad at a lot of things mm -hmm. the government's bad at policing you talk about that a lot why can't we just why can't we have education privately administered but paid for by because the I government think been we'll a just lot give of you the money give you the money and imagine if every family got fifteen thousand dollars a year and you could get that's that that can pay for a really good tuition for a really good school. D different parts of the country do it goes different uh, goes different distances, but you could, I, I think they could do really well with that rather than giving it to the school district. The, the school districts that that some not all of them some yeah. schools are good, but some of the most struggling districts are perfectly well funded. They just they haven't figured out. But the magic secret to actually but that is but that read, isn't the case Robbie we know that school systems are based on taxpayer dollars and where people live yes people who live rich people well-to-do people in their neighbors their public schools are funded better and they themselves yeah. have the money to supplement um, extensively these schools and that's why they have a better school system but people actual poor communities no they don't they do not have well-resourced uh, education system and that's a known thing also additionally teachers and everybody have pushed back well, yeah, a long we'll time. give them the money and then they can go to the rich kids school district Robbie think about this Right. Think about this world where you are you're a poor indigent person, which is a lot a significant amount of communities. Right. You're a poor person. You aren't given money for housing. You're not given money for health care. You're not given money for a significant amount of different things that are plaguing you and your family. Oh, I'm going to give you like you are you are at a deficit in so many ways. Oh, I'll mm -hmm. give you fifteen thousand dollars for school. But you're a million other different ways that you need money to supplement. How do you think that's actually like you have the ability just oh this whole fifteen thousand dollars. That's going to go. That's going to go for the schools and forget all the ways that I can't afford uh, my house. These people can't live. They can't resource themselves. Healthcare. There are different, a million different issues that are kind of compound to impact that negatively. I understand just, the sentiment. That seems better than sending you to the bad school. Or we can sure. fund things. We can fund things adequately, and instead of having a system where people who live in rich neighborhoods are benefited with better schools and better resource, right. we give the same to those to, to, to poor communities that we give to others. But I understand your sentiment. I understand the sentiment, Robbie. And I do hate those masks. I, listen, I, you I know, know you I hate do. a mask, Robbie. <laughs> All right, Team Rising will join us next. Stick around for that. Yesterday, Bloomberg announced the chance of the U.S. entering a recession in the next year is at 38 percent, according to an economic model. While Bloomberg's chief U.S. economist has said the risk of recession in early 2023 has risen substantially. While many Americans are seeing some relief at the pump, AAA warns the dip in prices may be short-lived as drivers continue to fuel up despite the high prices. According to a new Gallup poll, two-thirds of Americans say gas prices are causing them financial hardship.
one of the highest numbers on record in response to this question since the year 2000. Rebecca Zor and Amy Tarkanian join us to discuss these trends further and the impact they are having on voters. Welcome back, ladies. Thank you for having me. Hi, nice to be here. Yeah, nice to have you. So, you know, Rebecca, what do you make of the situation? Um, it looks like the future is grim and this is going to continue to negatively impact uh, the Biden administration's odds of surviving beyond 2024. But what's your take? I mean, it's going to negatively impact Biden, you know, for another run, but it's negative, negatively impacting me as the American. <laughs> I'm the American there we go. That's, listen, I'm two thirds the American that's suffering from the gas prices, from rent increase. You know, I know my parents are suffering from the mortgage, uh, you know, trying to hold on to the mortgages. Groceries are very high. So it's like I know that they don't want to. They've been, you know, haven't been ready to say recession. You know, we've been uh, um, saying inflation and we've been talking about that, but nobody wants to really discuss a uh, recession and who it's really affecting. And for the Biden administration, it does look bad on them, but we have leaders um, on both sides of it. Uh, Republicans, uh, we have Democrats who are just not doing what they need to do. We see the spending. What's more important? We have been seeing that and it hasn't been the American people. And also this is uh, when I see this and I think about people people who are in low income communities um, who aren't able to who are thinking about getting to work with gas right now. We're looking at things like and this is uh, on the Biden administration as well. But we're looking at things like minimum wage, which hasn't been able to, to go up at all. People who are still getting paid seven dollars and twenty five cents can't even afford after taxes to get one gallon of gas at the right. pump. We're seeing this affect a lot of people. But for me, when I look at this, I think about my family, I think about myself, people who are in low co income communities, specifically black people who are, this is really, really hitting the hardest. But what we what people are trying to hone in on what the conversation is sitting on is, oh, you know, Biden needs to do better. Biden, Biden administration needs to do better. It's every I think all leaders in totality need to do better. But if Biden does want to uh, run again, this is going to be something that he ta he needs to tackle as of right now. I think Biden seems very hesitant to really address this problem head on, right? Because we know that where this inflation, this inflation came out after Ukraine, Ukraine and Russia and what's going on and how the Biden administration is responding to that. Right or wrong, I have no real commentary on it, but I do recognize that it is a reflection of that. And the Biden administration seems to continue repeating to us that they are going to mm -hmm. continue giving aid to Ukraine, that this is going to happen. They've said repeatedly, we are in, we are at war, we are in war times, which is another conversation to be had, but that is their response. So yeah. I, I find it interesting that they're so hesitant to admit that a recession is coming when they are, you know, doubling down on maintaining the practices and the methods that have led us here right now. What's your take, Amy? Well, and they want to, to focus on things like abortion and climate change, which obviously are, they're important issues, but they're not the top issues. And so that's why they want to uh, dissuade you and I uh, from actually what's going on. And uh, I think the fact that the, that inflation is really the top priority, I mean, and just like what she said, it doesn't matter um, your socioeconomic background, it doesn't matter if you're black, white, Hispanic, we are all hurting. This is, this is really bad because out here on the West Coast, we're paying anywhere from six to seven dollars a gallon for gas. Who can afford that? 
who can afford to, to go on vacation? It, this is literally, it's ludicrous. And the fact that we're trying to even put food on our table, we have empty, we have empty, uh, I mean, there, there, there are areas where, you know, there's no, there's no baby formula. I mean, I, I am just so flabbergasted by this because <laughs> we can't even sustain what we should normally be able to, to see as a normal functioning uh, home. Yeah. Right. And, and the, and the uh, Democratic response to all that has been, to some degree, well, you should have bought a Tesla, right? I mean, that, like, I've heard that mm. from celebrities and even from some <laughs> political figures. Uh, yeah, who said it uh, about the... Bought a Tesla. Who's You're going to have to wait in line for hours. Who, to who got Tesla money? There, right. Who can, who who can afford well, it? I can barely afford the New York City subway station. You can actually who buy one. Who even get to the line? Nobody. We can't even get to the line. Who's thinking yeah. about buying right. a Tesla? I'm having to choose from uh, should I go get gas to get to work or should I hold out uh, and see if I can work from home on today so that I can go get groceries? You see what I'm saying? Right. We're having to ration out what we... We're not thinking about Teslas. I don't, right. we're, not, we're not in that where we haven't even reached that part of because it. I'm a lot of these people at the top the are out of touch. Thing. A lot of these people are out of touch. Like, if we're honest, right? The people involved, our government, our politicians, they can afford the gas. You know what I mean? They are probably not right. making life or death decisions at the pump. They're paying whatever it is. They're probably not checking. They fill up their tank and they go. They don't really recognize that the average American does not have that luxury. Right. There are some of us that literally, you don't have the money. I, you can go in the New York City subway station at any point in time and you will people, see people standing there hoping that some kind-hearted person opens the door or will swipe them or in. Gives them people a swipe can, them in. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Because people cannot afford even the $2.75 it takes to ride the subways. So imagine now you you, you need cars. So many, let's not forget what our infrastructure is on, on public transportation around this country. So many people have to rely on cars and vehicles and that kinds of transportation to get to work, to pick up their children, to do any of the things that they need to do. And now they literally cannot afford to put the gas in their car to get where they need to go. And that exposes them to a whole nother series of stressors. But, Correct. Uh, and, and, I mean, that's the West Coast and that's how we live. We right. have to drive. There's right. no subway. There's no bus. We <laughs> have to drive. Right. Over the and holiday they want us weekend. To drive to work. <laughs> over the holiday weekend, Biden slammed companies running gas stations for the high prices, adding that they should bring down prices to reflect crude oil prices. Reporter Peter Ducey questioned Press Secretary Karine Jean Pierre over Biden's tweet. Let's watch. How did the president go from blaming high gas prices on Putin to big oil to small business owners now? Well, here's the thing about that. Um, Peter, is when you look at, um, as of this morning, when you look at the crude oil uh, and when you look at whole, wholesale oil prices as well, they've declined about 15%. And so retail gas prices, have, however, have only declined just about 3% over the same time period uh, as we have seen uh, with the crude oil prices and the uh, wholesale gas prices. And meanwhile, those same uh, retailers are profiting, their profit have gone up about 40 cents, nearly 40 cents in, in that same period of time. So what the president is saying is that everyone along that chain, along that production ch chain line, needs to, needs to make sure that they're doing what what is possible, their part, in bringing down the, the cost for, for the American people. Mm. Rebecca, what do, what do you make of that response? Girl, we ain't gonna see it. We ain't gonna see it. Why? Because 
uh, I was on the show, um, you know, a few months back and we were discussing how gas prices were going up. And it was the conversation started um, happening because they were saying it, be- it was because of the war, uh, you know, Russia and Ukraine. And this is where we get our oil. It was that whole conversation. And this is why we saw gas prices going up at the time. Now we, we're not talking so much about the war anymore. Uh, that's not, you know, in, mainly in the headlines. But we even knew at that time that that wasn't really the reason why our gas prices were going up. So many of these gas companies had profited during the last two years during during uh, uh, the pandemic or the beginning of the pandemic, and they profited. So they right. there is no reason why we should be suffering. What we're seeing here is capitalism. So I hear what she's saying, um, and shout out to my Haitian sister, Karine, but I hear what she's saying, but we it's like... W- what can we do? We've been having this discussion this whole time. We've been trying to hold those people accountable, right. uh, these companies, but nothing has changed. And we still see the gas prices skyrocketing. For us as uh, the everyday American, um, listen, j- if you tell us the gas prices went down 2%, 1%, we're still looking at it like, right. dang, these gas prices are unattainable. This is too high. I can, I still have to make sure that I'm figuring out, do I do gas or do I do groceries today? What am I going to do? How far can I go? That that's still going to be our mindset because that percentage doesn't mean anything to us. This is still this is still something that's unattainable for us. We can't get gas. Can't afford right. it. Absolutely. Well, we want to turn uh, to some poll numbers. The new Monmouth poll found that 88% of the country thinks we are actually on the wrong track. And while 18 to 34-year-olds disapprove of Biden at 63%, 59% would still rather see Democrats in control of Congress. Amy, what do you make of these results? I think Republicans do have a big opening coming, uh, certainly in the, in the midterms and then also in 2024. But they they have to run republicans have to stay i think laser focused on the economy and some other things you know without obviously social conservatives got a huge win but without kind of i think some states are in danger of overreaching a little bit on uh, on the uh, abortion restrictions and other things uh you know what what would be your advice uh moving forward Well, no, I would agree with you. I I think we need to steer clear from abortion and climate change, but we need to stay focused on, uh, you know, inflation and the economy and gas prices. And quite honestly, everything that she just said about, you know, choosing between having to put in gas in her tank or food on her table, that is the focus. And I think it doesn't matter, you know, your party affiliation. Everyone is struggling in that area. And so I I think that's really what Republicans need to uh, stay laser focused on. Yeah, well, I think there's a world where people would appreciate, Democratic voters would appreciate um, where Democrats focused on things like abortion and climate change. I think the problem is that they're not doing that effectively either. I think Mm -hmm. that's the issue, all of these issues. Yeah, but it's not at the top of the priority list. I under, listen, uh, the economy obviously impacts us all. I will never I will never take that away and why the economy is important. However, I will say this. Climate change doesn't also impact us all, right? The state of our world and whether or not we're going to have a world in a country even here, present, yeah. down the line. Important. I'm definitely going to put it in important. And when it comes to abortion and abortion and all of the different um, rights that trickle down yeah, from and, it and what we see, boys, those things are important. And, and, yeah. and go ahead and, and tell you, too, I mean, Lake Mead in Las Vegas is dropping dramatically. And so we're going to be in a world of trouble, um, you know, (laughs) for thousands of people. So I do think that 
climate change is important, but it's not going to be the top mm-hmm. for right. everybody across the nation. Fair. But yes, yeah. it is important. Fair. Well, we got to run. Uh, Rebecca, Amy, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Happy to be here as always. <laughs> thank you. And we'll be back with more Rising in just a minute. Stay with us. Air travel chaos is continuing as thousands of flights were delayed or canceled this past holiday weekend. This is a result of many different factors, such as airline layoffs and therefore short staffing. Now, last week, Senator Bernie Sanders proposed to fine airlines for these cancellations and delays, including $55,000 per passenger. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg said he wasn't he hasn't seen all the math come back on the proposal. Let's take a look. How many of Senator Sanders' uh, calls to action are actively being considered? Things like requiring you to refund passengers for flights that are delayed for more than an hour. So, first of all, just to be very clear, air traffic control staffing issues do not explain the majority of the delays and cancellations we've been seeing. But when there is an issue and as an after shock from COVID, we have seen some impacts on staffing. We're working proactively and engaging the airlines to make sure that we're we're collaborating on that. A number of issues that we have seen appear to be related to the phenomenon of airlines uh, letting airlines or uh, pilots or, or sometimes even pushing pilots into early retirement. And I think that's a source of frustration for the public because, of course, lots of taxpayer money went to these airlines precisely in order to keep people on the job in order to keep those airlines running in a resilient way. So when the demand came back, they would be ready to respond. These are the kinds that were uh, issues that we're monitoring. You mentioned a letter from Senator Sanders. I saw it, gave him a call. We've, we've talked about some of his ideas. I haven't seen all of the math come back on some of those proposals. But what I will say is we do have a lot of uh, authorities for ensuring that passengers are protected. As a matter of fact, Uh, Earlier, we issued the largest ever fines uh, against airlines that failed to provide prompt refunds for passengers that they're entitled to. And we're going to continue making sure that the rules are followed uh, and uh, look to expand our our, uh, toolkit whenever that's appropriate. Research director at the American Economic Liberties Project, Matt Stoller, joins us now to weigh in. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Yep. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so, Matt, I've seen you express your thoughts on this uh, online. Uh, you said if you want to know Biden's problem, consider that Pete Buttigieg is an unmitigated catastrophe at the Department of Transportation. Uh, this might be one of the only things you and I agree on. <laughs> There's no criticism at all of his tenure on the Hill or within partisan media. The Dem political machine has no feedback loop uh, to reality. So talk more about you know, what you see as the, the deficiencies. And again, I, I absolutely agree with, uh, with Mayor Pete suddenly upgraded to nation's foremost expert and head of transportation. Yeah, so to give you a sense, I mean, there's there's problems with how uh, Secretary Buttigieg is operating, and then there's also structural problems with the airlines, which are really, it's an industry in crisis. But what's effectively happened is that the airlines uh, consolidated over the last 20 years. So there's, there's uh, four main trunk airlines that control 80% of flights, uh, and then they screw passengers. Uh, in this particular case, they have been committing fraud because they uh, they weren't supposed to do this when they got their big bailouts during COVID, but then they they laid off a bunch, they effectively laid off a bunch of their workforce. And then when uh, demand air, for air travel came back, 
they didn't have the capacity to service all of those customers. But instead of just scheduling flights they knew they could service, they scheduled a lot more flights that they knew they couldn't service, leading to all of these uh, cancellations that took place right before the flights. And that is sort of a form of fraud, right? To, to take money for services that you know you cannot deliver. Right. Now to move to Secretary Buttigieg for a second, because I made, that's a pretty bold statement that I made, but um, you know, the DOT, the Department of Transportation has pretty broad authority over the airlines and they're the only ones that have authority over the airlines. Like everybody else, the state attorney generals or consumers, uh, are preempted, right? It's just the secretary of the Department of Transportation. But uh, in the mid, in the 2010s, early 2010s, to give you a sense of how little he has enforced any sort of rules, um, we had about 50 enforcement orders a year against airlines. Under Trump, that dropped to about 10 to 20 a year. Last year, there were four enforcement orders. This is under Secretary Buttigieg. After the airline simply refused to give refunds, cash refunds that they were legally obligated to do over COVID. And then this year, there has there have been like two or three, two or three enforcement orders, which is a record low in an industry in crisis. And so when, when Secretary Buttigieg says something like, oh, we've, we've given a, a record fine, what he means is they, they fined Air Canada $25 million for openly saying, we are not gonna follow the law when it comes to refunds. They just said, we're not gonna follow it. So, so they issued a $25 million fine, negotiated it down to $2 million. There has been 10 to $20 billion of canceled flights that the airlines have simply not returned. Uh, they've not returned money to customers, even though they are legally obligated to do so. And so what we need is a secretary of transportation who is actually gonna take his job seriously of making sure that airlines don't commit fraud. And then we need to really rethink how we have this structured airline industry in the first place because it's pretty clear that it's not actually delivering good reliable air service for the american public you know i think that is a pretty compelling argument i'm glad you actually reminded us that we did bail them out we did bail, bail out the airline industries during covid because Something honestly, i was absolutely and utterly against uh because i knew <laughs> you, you bail the industry specific bailouts always go this way right where uh where and well maybe you can speak to this matt um, where we, we think, okay, we're going to give them this money and then they're going to do right. what we say, don't lay people off, et cetera. And right. then they, they find some creative way or maybe even a legal way to do yeah. it, given we gave them this money. I mean, and the, quickest, now we're... the quickest way to incense me is to remind me some taxpayer dollars of mine went to something yeah. that's moving ineffectively. So I'm, I'm glad you gave us the reminder. And, and my understanding, Matt, is that, you know, they, they, they laid off the, or, or they pushed into retirement rather the pilots, and it's difficult to just hire back up to what you would need to be at full capacity to handle all these flights because you can't just you have to. There's actually somewhat quite cumbersome um, uh, hour, minimum hours for how many flights you take before you can like fly, before you can be a pli uh, pilot flying on their own that kind of thing. Well, I also just don't want to pay. Right. I mean, that's a, a significant part of it. But let me let me push back a little bit on the anti bailout sentiment. Right. Because airlines oh, get from the very get beginning have always been taxpayer supported and they have always been supported by a whole bunch of public infrastructure, airports, um, you know, air traffic controllers. There's just a lot of, you know, fuel depots and things like that. And we just have a choice. And we had this choice after 9-11 when they got um, a bailout. They had this choice after 2020 during COVID when we got a bailout, which is do we want a national air system? And most people do, 
And if you don't want a national air system, if you don't want to be able to fly places, then you don't need to have public support of, of an airline industry. We've always chosen to have an airline industry because we want to be able to fly places. And I think that's generally a good choice. The problem is not that we uh, is not that we have public support for this infrastructure, because we have public support for almost every transportation infrastructure, whether we like pretend that taxpayers are not involved or not. The problem here is that we don't regulate the system like it's a public national resource. Okay. Instead, we offer lots of public subsidies and, and uh, capacity to these institutions. And then we say, go and make as much money as you can. And that's not how we used to regulate these systems, but it's how we've been regulating these systems since the late 1970s and it's it's kind of gotten worse. So this is not um, this is not a, a, a sort of an argument against having an, a national airline system, which is really what people mean when they say we don't want any bailouts. Um, it's for having a national system, but one that is regulated like what airlines are, which is a public utility. Okay, well, so I, let, I get it. You would... let me let me further push back on, on that and get your response. To that the the. I would consider the government response, the government air travel related response to 9-11 to be among the most catastrophic uh, policy mistakes uh, ever made by the federal government uh, in, in terms of the security, the security measures, TSA, all of that stuff that you know, contribute massively, based on my understanding, to our to our current problem. They slow down flights. They make flying much less efficient. It costs money. Uh, running this enormous bureaucracy, uh, it it and and doesn't has not ever been shown whatsoever to actually make air travel any safer whatsoever. It's just a stupid thing we do and we have done for 20 years. So that that makes me afraid of giving the government more regulatory authority over uh, airlines because what they have done with that is some of the most stupid decisions ever made by policy but to, but to matt's point but to matt's point we do already have this system in place we currently have have this we have it right. we already have it so there does need to be something done in terms of our government and supporting them and i think what matt is saying is the issue is not that they they put the money into trying to support this system at a time when they would have needed so it so it didn't crash it's the fact that they put the money there but then they failed to properly regulate it and and ensure that our money was put to good use and that we're not dealing with the exact same problems that we put the money in to prevent so i, I think the issue is on Buttigieg and poor, and poor leadership is what you're saying, right, Matt, if I understand correctly? You... Right. I mean, there's two. That, that's, that's, that's right. There's basically two problems. One is that Secretary Buttigieg is a weak leader who doesn't you know, do his job. Um, but we've, we've had serious problems with secretaries of transportation going back to 1978. Right. The other problem is that we have not made a choice about, uh, about how to organize a national air system. We all agree that we want a national air system, right? And if you want a national air system, then it is going to be structured by the government. That is just the way that these things have to happen because it needs lots of public infrastructure. It's always been subsidized in various ways. The question is, how do you actually regulate a system to make sure that people have like a pretty reliable air system? It has reasonable security measures. And I think that I agree with you that a lot of the security measures are foolish or counterproductive, and often the government choices have been poor over the last 30 or 40 years. But the question isn't, well, let's get rid of all of that. Let's push, let's get rid of all government involvement, because that's really an argument for not having an air system at all. That's an argument for not being able to fly places. The question is, how do we actually structure a system that has reliable, um, has reliable air service 
to most places in the country because, you know, in a lot of places in the country, you can't get air service anymore, and particularly in smaller towns, uh, non-trunk routes. I mean, I live in D.C., so it's pretty easy to get places, but if most places in this country, you can't. This is all a function of regulatory choices to allow how we fly and the fees that we're charged and all of the routes that are that that is now made. Those decisions are made on Wall Street in New York in collusion with sort of support like junior government officials like Pete Buttigieg. And I don't think that that's the way we should make these decisions. I think we should make these decisions through our democratic institutions, through Congress, through regulators and have a public utility system that works for all of us um, instead of one that just works for some people in Wall Street and instead of the alternative, the sort of let's get the government out, which is not having an air system at all. And those are really the choices. Well, Matt, thank you so much uh, for sharing your perspective. We appreciate it as always. Hey, thanks a lot. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Well, podcaster Joe Rogan has apparently turned down several offers to have Donald Trump on his podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience. Let's watch. By the way, I'm not a Trump supporter in any way, shape, or form. I've had the opportunity to have him on my show more than once. I've said no every time. I don't want to help him. I'm not interested in helping him. This comes a week after Rogan revealed his support for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, telling listeners he would, quote, work as a good president. So. Yeah, I think it's interesting that uh, he didn't want to have Trump on because uh, he has had on other candidates. He had on uh, Bernie Sanders, right, in the, uh, in the what was it, before the 2020 He's had primaries? Bernie, Tulsi, Andrew Yang. Right. He's had several candidates on his show. Right. Listen, I'm pretty critical, uh, or I've at least have been critical of Joe Rogan in the past, and I think that he often has used his platform recklessly. But I think this is a good move. I see how that distinguishes Trump. Is like I said, Trump is a character that is extremely polarizing. That you know he influenced an insurrection. He's done done a lot of negative harm to our country, and I think there are a lot, a lot of people who would agree with that. And I think it makes sense. It's a wise choice not to continue to embolden that or not to provide his platform to that. I also think there might be a little bit of self-preservation involved in that. Again, he's received so much large criticism it's an easy way that we could you know shoot him shoot well him the idea would be you'd have you could have trump on and then you could make him answer questions about no. all the things uh, right. you no. know you no. just you right. just brought up no right. let's yeah. let's be honest no no trump yes. trump in and of itself having a platform he is engaged in so much dangerous rhetoric that he was removed off twitter and a lot of people in support well, yeah we don't like that either. i know y'all might not be but i do i do think that trump's rhetoric has been dangerous i think that people could question trump as much as they want logic and everything uh, go out the window with him as long as he's provided a platform to be able to embolden his supporters i think it has negative consequences and in light of what happened with january 6th i think it's a responsible choice um not to do that i also think for our purposes we've acknowledged that desantis is an emerging character Character that very much so can overtake, and it looks like he's already in some polls, overtaken Trump in popularity and might end up being the Republican picks. I think yeah, it makes sense for him to say no to Trump and publicly lend his support around a DeSantis. Not that I like it, but in terms of just going forward, I don't, I don't think that's a bad move. But I, I think... And look, it's Joe Rogan's show, so he can have on whoever he wants, and he could just, he could just feel like Donald Trump has plenty of platforms to talk, so there's no... You know, I, I don't have much to add here, but... I actually think he would have something to add. He, he'd be one of, uh, you know, few. There's a lot. There's probably a lot of people who like Donald Trump, also like Joe Rogan, uh, and then right. there's plenty of people who like Joe Rogan and don't like Donald Trump, and vice versa, of course. But uh, it, it might, uh, you know, even from the standpoint of trying to damage Donald Trump or trying to beat him or something, an argument. I think it would be interesting to have uh, to have Rogan interview him. Not that, not that he's under any obligation to do so. Obviously, what do you think, Kim? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't really like Joe Rogan's statement for a couple of reasons. The first one is it sort of verifies or validates this idea that if you platform a person, yeah. then you're somehow responsible for their their popularity or you know, you're responsible for them in some way. I don't I don't ever agree with that. I don't agree that, oh, you shouldn't pla- you shouldn't, uh, you know, may- legitimize. I hate that. Right. When they say, mm-hmm. oh, you, you shouldn't legitimize that person by having them on your show or by interviewing them or by doing X, Y, Z with them. I don't agree with that. The bottom line is Donald Trump is an incredibly popular figure, whether you like it or not. People want to hear from the guy. People are are intending to vote for him. That's democracy. So look, it is Joe Rogan's show. He can do whatever he wants. He's not a newscaster. He's not. So Joe Rogan's not the news. So he can, he's entertainment. So he can do whatever he wants on his entertainment show. He doesn't need to platform every single politician right. in order, you know, out of fairness. Right. Um, but and he, he only he, has limited time, right? He can, he can do. He, he can talk whoever's time, interesting right, to him is who he should right. talk to. But am I but disputing? I am I, I disputing that that uh, there are people who want to hear from Trump? No. If people want to hear from Trump, they can and they absolutely do. They seek out the channels in which they can hear from him. He's making noise everywhere that he wants all of the time and calling his little rallies and his press conferences. So you can hear from Donald Trump. He doesn't need to be on Joe Rogan's platform. And in this case, I don't think it's necessarily important whether or not we're saying Joe 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 Rogan or someone that you know, lends their platform is responsible for it. I don't think that's what it is. But I think what Joe Rogan is saying is, I don't like the guy. I don't support him, you know, contrary to what I think people might assume. So I think it it probably gave him the moment to address that because people who are not paying attention would probably assume that uh, Joe Rogan supports a figure like Trump. So I think that gave him the opportunity to say- You'd have to be really not paying attention because he endorsed Bernie Sanders. My my point (laughs) is he he got that opportunity to do that. And he's saying- I don't actually care to help him. He's not somebody I am in support of, so I don't care to use my platform to help him speak to my audience. And I don't, there's nothing really unreasonable about yeah. that at all to me. Well, except that he's on dangerous ground now, because now what he's basically saying is that everybody he has on his show, he agrees with or supports in some way. I don't think that's I what just, he said, but I don't think that's what he said. kind of saying that. Right. I mean, that's kind of what he is implying by saying that, by saying, I don't support this guy, so I'm not going to have him on my show. I think it, there's it, a- it, it leads to that line of reasoning that therefore you then at least somewhat support everybody you have on your show. That's a dangerous precedent to go down. I think, th- I mean, maybe if that's what I thought uh, he was saying or what it implied, but I think there is a world where you could have a show and you could have different characters and stuff on and people talk and you don't necessarily endorse or, uh, or endorse one versus not the other or like them all, but there could be some people that rise to a level, you know what, I actually dislike this person enough where I think it's dangerous um, enough where I really just do not want to help them that I will not have this particular person on. It doesn't mean that I like or have endorsed everybody else. And I don't think that would even, be, like we said, there have been other politicians he've, he's had on with conflicting and diverging views. So I, I think it would be unfair to suggest or feel like it implies that he supports them all or he likes everybody. I think in this case, he's just saying, listen, I don't like Trump. I don't like him. I've had the opportunity to have him once. I would call it dangerous. I would just say yeah, it's... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. 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 But the, so the word... Go ahead, You're Kim. saying he's dangerous. I right? feel, so, Olayami Oluren yeah. feels that it's dangerous yeah. to platform Trump. I absolutely do. I think we've seen the consequences of that. I think Trump emboldens and inflames a lot of hate and a lot of crazy um, results. So, yes, I think so. But that's not what Joe Biden, uh, Joe Rogan just said. What he said is, I don't like him. I don't support him. I've had an opportunity to have him mm-hmm. on the show. I've chosen not to. I don't want to help him. That's it. Yeah. I think it is interesting that um, you know, Rogan is now speaking so positively about um, DeSantis, you know, does is is being clear that he does not like Trump, does not support Trump, but does like DeSantis. Obviously, he supported Bernie last time. I, it, it shows the kind of um, uh, uh, space for a 
for a populist kind of independent candidate? I mean, I know you've said, Kim, that you're, you're a kind of former exactly. supporter of some of Bernie type uh, uh, policies, and you've spoken. Uh, not, I not pegging. For right, right, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't mean to, you know, peg you as a, I'm not trying to. Right, but yes, you said you, you supported him, and, and you're, you've spoken highly of, uh, somewhat positively at least, of, of DeSantis. Um, so yeah, it's, I mean, now this I, is now a I, real. I, right. This is a real yeah, trajectory. If there was is what an election I'm today. Sure. If there was an election today and Ron DeSantis was on the ticket, I'd probably be voting for Ron DeSantis. So I'm in the same camp, a populist yeah. that says Bernie Sanders was my guy for a long time. He, I, I, I didn't like the 2020 election. Uh, I, I felt like he went down the wrong path. So did Trump. I think Trump kind of abandoned those 2016 populist talking points. I think both of them went into this culture war that nobody really cares about except for the fringe few on social media, those of us that are there. Uh, and now you've got Ron DeSantis, who's actually doing things to benefit his constituents. He's thinking about Floridians and he's actually making decisions on their behalf, whether I agree, you know, and I, I don't agree with like 15 percent or maybe even 20 percent of what Ron DeSantis does. But I can at least appreciate that he he seems to be working for his constituents and not for big pharma or big money interests or the big military industrial complex, although we don't really know a lot about his foreign policy. Um, so. But, you know, as it stands today, I mean, a choice between Joe Biden and Ron DeSantis. I'm voting Ron DeSantis. That's the way that's going to go. I don't think there's anybody in the Democratic Party at this. There, I, I can tell you there's nobody on the Democratic side of the aisle right now. I'm so frustrated with the Democratic Party, so angry with them. There's no one I would vote for on that side of the aisle, even if it was just to punish them just for being a terrible party. What, what it shows so, in a way is that Trump was to, in some sense standing in the way of a, of a more dur durable populist kind of candidate emerging on the uh, in the Republican Party who could win votes like yours, like Joe Rogan's, et cetera. Um, so, you know, instead of the Trump's defeat being like the end of populism on the right, it actually might be getting out of the way or for something a lot well, more durable and strong you know, to emerge. That's and, so, I don't agree with any of our characterizations yeah. we are making about Ron DeSantis and populism and all these other. I don't. But I will say this, you know, I do believe it is a, a smarter move on the behalf of Republicans to to uh, hitch their tents to Ron DeSantis as opposed to Trump going into the next election. So that being said, that's the reason why I think the comment is uh, made sense from Joe Rogan. And I understand y'all's positions, right. but obviously right. it's a no for me. He doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. We'll, we'll have more rising uh, right after this. Stay with us. So, Kim, what's on your radar? Well, Rhode Island State Senator Tierra Mack made this video over the holiday weekend. Vote Senator Mack. Now we had to blur it out because YouTube doesn't allow you to see bums shaking in a thong bikini because there might be children watching or something, but you can imagine it. So she says at the end of that video, vote Senator Mack. So clearly this is not an official campaign video, but it was posted on our TikTok account under the handle Mac District 6. So it wasn't exactly a personal account she was posting from. Now, district 6 is the district Senator Mac represents inside of Rhode Island. Now, before we talk more about the twerking video, I want to show you this actual campaign video from Senator Mac so you get a sense of who she is outside of this controversy. Growing up, I didn't see many people who looked like me in politics. I didn't know that people with backgrounds like mine who shared the same stories as my family and community could have a seat at a state house table. Last year, working on the Reproductive Privacy Act, 
Out of hundreds of people in the crowds, I could name the five people who looked like me. Growing up in a low-income community, I remember watching my mom make the decision between paying for rent or paying for groceries, facing an eviction notice or keeping the lights on. I never knew that I could have a voice in the decisions that shaped my community. Decisions that shaped the fight for quality education, clean air, food, and healthy communities. It was through activism and fighting for these issues that I realized I could have a hand in shaping the way that our communities looked. I decided to run for Senate because I was unwilling to wait for the world to change around me. I was unwilling to wait for the work of activism to finally break through the walls of the State House. I am running because I want there to be someone like me in office. I am running because I want to prove that we can not only have a seat at the table, but we can bring the table back to where it belongs, our house. I want to use my story and my experience to dare to dream and dare to hope. Let's put that hope into action. Vote for me, Tiara Mack, State Senate District 6. Okay, so she seems like a fairly normal person there, right? So, uh, so let's go back to the twerking. Now, there are two big conversations going on surrounding this video. The first being about whether or not this type of video is appropriate for a state senator. Is it racist for people to be upset? Should people just loosen up and realize twerking is this new generation's political equivalent to having a beer at a bar with a politician? And the second conversation is about the sexual explicitness of the video and the rising concern parents are having about how sex is taught to our kids. So let's start with that one. Now, people are pointing at the sexually explicit nature of the video and then saying, here's the Rhode Island Senator, Tara Mack, who sponsored the sexual pleasure education bill. Senator Mack even tweeted about it saying, really excited for the House sex ed bill hearing later today, teaching comprehensive, queer inclusive, pleasure-based sex ed was a highlight of my time teaching. So people are seeing this and thinking the left really has gone too far with how sex, sexuality, and gender are being taught to our kids. So what is this bill? Well, it's a bill regarding how sex ed, sex ed is taught in schools. It's for grades six through 12 and starts off by saying abstinence should be taught as the preferred method of birth control and prevention of STDs. Then it goes on to say that each year the curriculum should include age and developmentally appropriate material on topics such as consent, prevention of pregnancy, STDs, sexual violence, and that each course should be appropriate for all races, genders, sexual orientations, ethnic and cultural backgrounds. And then it says, shall affirmatively recognize pleasure-based sexual relations, different sexual orientations, and be inclusive of same-sex relationships. Now, people have zeroed in on the teaching of pleasure-based sexual relations. They're looking at that video of her half-naked twerking upside down, then calling for votes and thinking, what the heck? So what exactly is teaching pleasure-based sexual relations? Well, Planned Parenthood has an article about it on their website, and I'm just gonna read this so that you all know what it is. Now it says this, there is a big taboo around pleasure, particularly sexual pleasure. People worry that teaching children how to seek pleasure in their relationships will encourage them to have unprotected sex before they're ready. That can seem scary as a parent or educator. Thankfully, there's a lot of evidence showing the positives of including pleasure in sexuality education. Not only are students who are given comprehensive sex education choosing to have sex at a later age, but they're also more likely to use birth control when they do have sex. So what is pleasure-based sex education? When comprehensive sex education is pleasure-based, it emphasizes that sexual activity should be pleasure-focused. It normalizes the idea of giving and receiving pleasure, 
not just in sexual activity, but in relationships as a whole. When sex education is pleasure-based, students develop healthier relationships both with themselves and their partner, increasing their overall life satisfaction and happiness. The truth is children and teens are already talking about, um, so the truth is children and teens are already talking in messages about sex all the time, whether they know it or not. Advertisements, TV shows, and peers are constantly bombarding kids with information on sexuality. If they're getting messages on pleasure and sexuality anyway, the responsible thing to do is ensure they have the best chance at a happy and healthy sex life. Pleasure is inherently about feeling happy and fulfilled. So, okay, that's what that's about. Now, uh, let's talk about the other controversial aspect to this half-naked twerking video. That is that it's inappropriate and unprofessional behavior for someone like a senator. Her supporters are saying this is just a futile attempt at a smear job. For example, Amanda Littman, the co-founder of Run For Something, tweeted, quote, the trolls aren't coming for Run For Something candidate Mac District 6 because of a video. They're coming for her because she's a young, queer, black leader and a fierce champion for repo rights. We've got her back. Chip in to her re-election now. Now, others are saying this has nothing to do with being queer or black. After all, numerous white law enforcement officers have been suspended for posting TikTok videos in uniform for similar reasons. The songs they used were too sexually explicit or the things they were doing were viewed as negatively impacting the public perception of the agency. So Tara Mack has, of course, responded to all of this attention. She's tweeted, damn, twerking upside down really makes the conservatives unhinged Internet accounts pop off on a Monday. She went on to say, so can the media also cover when I won a national championship in May and named MB MVP of the match? Can the media also cover the 10 plus bills I sponsored that the right that the uh, that the Rhode Island Senate never scheduled for a hearing? Can the media cover any policy wins had by the youngest black state senator in Rhode Island? As a black queer woman, you all know, you all should know the answer is no. Let's them let them carry on their narrative. Me, I'm going to be joyful, free, and unbothered. So she's been getting a lot of backlash on this. Uh, and I've actually noticed even a lot in the black community are coming out against her. I've noticed this on YouTube. The few that I was able to search that did reviews of her twerking. Um, a couple of those uh, of those channels were saying that black women in particular are extremely hypersexualized and that this only contributes to that, that, th that she doesn't need to be shaking her rear end in front of a camera for votes, um, that that is something that some would like to see change. I would like to know what what is your opinion on this? I would like to be spared of the respectability politics. First of all, there are lots of ways that black people and black women, yes, we are hypersexualized, we are stereotyped. A lot of different things that are unfair happen to us. It does not mean that we should then adjust our actions and our life in order to prevent stereotypes and unfair characterizations that would persist anyway because the people that are doing it would just do it. So that's, that's the one when I say there. Two, as far as the twerking in the video, Personally, it wouldn't persuade or dissuade me either way in terms of it wouldn't, I wouldn't watch that video and think, oh, I want to vote for her. Or, and I wouldn't watch that video and think, oh, this person is unqualified or unfit to be a, a senator. The reality is people are regular people. They twerk. They do things. I am a lawyer. I definitely twerk. I go out. I do all of the things. Doesn't mean anything. I'll still get you out of jail next week. So it has no bearing on that. But I do think for her purposes, very clearly, based on uh, the campaign video we showed, she's very interested in appealing to people who have not seen themselves reflected in, in politics very often, especially with our old standards of professionalism and the times of yesteryear. It's, you can't be this way. You can't do this thing. You have to be this professional image, this facade that you're made up to be all the time in order to get credibility. She's clearly speaking to a generation that no longer believes in that and feel very... Um, 
motivated and like candidates and people that they see more authentic and they see themselves in, which is why the video is on TikTok. Obviously, she's appealing to Gen Z, these people that that will like uh, that. So I don't have an right. issue. I just I just don't have an issue with it. And I do think it's just an unreasonable level of uproar. And I think in general, the kind of uproar we see from Republicans when it comes to stuff like this, when Cardi B and Megan Stallion dropped WAP, it's 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 just performance theater. It's insincere. And quite frankly, it doesn't make sense to me on a party who's had so many politicians, including its last president, be accused of sexual assault and all kinds of misconduct. But all of a sudden, a twerk video is too much for you. Like I, I couldn't I couldn't care less about the video uh the however the touting of the 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 sex uh the pleasure-based sex training um look i you we read over that kim and some of that uh that instruction for kids sounds fine uh, probably pretty routine you know some knowledge of how reproduction actually works I don't know that it should really go far with that. I probably wouldn't have a problem with it, but I know a lot of parents are very upset right now about what specifically is being taught in schools, especially relating to topics like sex. And I, you know what, the, the, you work for the taxpayers, not the other way around. You work for the families, you work for the parents. I think it would behoove uh, political representatives to be very, very, very careful about what they are putting into the curriculum that might not, you know, there, there are some families who they want to be the ones to talk to their kids about this. They might not agree with how, it, it might not be most teachers, but some, te you know, more activist educators who are, are going to go too far or use this as a pretext to talk about something irresponsible. I don't think that's most teachers or most of these educators, but we, we have seen some examples of that from the libs of TikTok account, right? So uh, so I, I'm, I'm more concerned about the bill than the video. I, I don't care about the video at all, but uh, but there, there is there is something and, and whether you don't if you don't agree with it, fine, you can still you can teach your kid, you know, pleasure based, whatever. It's your kid. But does it should it be part of the school and then all parents, even ones who are not comfortable with it, that has to be the experiment that is clearly causing a right. massive blowback to that idea, right? That idea is empowering Republicans everywhere. So this is, you know, free advice for Democrats, like maybe lay off this a little bit. Is this the most important thing to cram this teaching down sixth graders? Um, I will just say there? my add-on, I'm all for a more robust um, sexual education. I think the abstinence approach and everything that we have very much so contributes to teen pregnancy. The reality, you watch you watch before, you see the things happening. Teenagers have sex, they have sex, yeah. they're going out there Teen pregnancy is going down though. Yeah. Yeah, I, listen, I'm not I'm yeah. not speaking as to whether it is, but I think that's also a reflection of our changing times, people being more educated, contraceptive, all these different things are more available in us changing um, the culture on the ground. So I will say I will push back against um, teaching abstinence and these very old school methods that don't do anything but leave people in a bind down the line. But I will say, to be fair, to, to find a middle ground, I don't I. I understand uh, why people would want to change uh, sexual education to be... Um, more accurate, or, especially at an older level, right? If we're talking adults and people and stuff, I think men and boys and stuff are very trained and educated on sex in a way that is not advantageous to the people that they mm -hmm. are engaging with in the future. But I, that's what I'm Robbie, I'm about to get okay. to it. Okay. <laughs> I do think that I don't think you necessarily need to teach sex pleasure education to sixth grade or however. Yeah. I, I, I think there should be a line, well, it you know? Say, it sounds it like a college curriculum. Yeah. I mean, it says it needs to be age appropriate for yes. each level. Right. So, okay, so, you know, it, it okay. does. It but we might disagree that. on what it, like, people might disagree. But I like on that. I like that. I like uh, adding in that caveat, Kim. Yeah. I, like yeah, I, I mean, look, 
I, kids are watching much, much worse than what they're yes, ever going to learn true. in sex yes. ed. And that's where they're really learning about sex. And so, you know, this sort of uh, this idea of bringing in those conversations inside of the classroom is meant to counter what they're already going to see online right. that you as a parent may never know that they're actually looking at. Maybe you've blocked it on your Internet at home and you think your kid is safe and free, but then they go to school and some other kid shows it to them. Right. So they're going to see images that are very graphic and I would think even uh, uh, very detrimental to the actual experience between a couple, between two people. Instead, it's very degrading. Um, you know, the experience is not normal and natural for, you know, what should be between a man and a woman or man and a man or whoever, right? Between yeah. people yeah. Whoever. that are Consenting engaging people. in consensual, right. So that, I think that's what it's meant to do. I mean, I do personally think that the twerking video was totally inappropriate for somebody. I don't think it's professional at all. I do think people need to get a handle on that. I don't think that it, it is. I don't think that it's we should just say, well, anything goes. We're in a new era and anything. politicians shouldn't twerk. Is it that you've seen the video or just because I don't think she should be twerking in a video and then asking for votes after that. If she wants to go mm -hmm. dancing at a club, she's 28 years old. There's a time and a place to twerk. Twerking should not be done in a video on an account that says Mac District 6 and then asking for votes after that twerking video. So it's same thing with the cops that were doing stuff in their uniforms and posting it. And then they got they were suspended. Many of them. This was going on because it's that younger generation, the people in their 20s, they're TikToking everything. And so there's been like this concerted effort to sort of crack down on social media posting inside of law enforcement. They're getting it no matter who they are. They're being told, look, you represent, especially when you're wearing a uniform, and, and in her case, mm -hmm. when she's saying Mac District 6, when you're representing people and you shouldn't have a negative, you know, you shouldn't be putting something out there that maybe are going to be upsetting of your to, to people. Mm -hmm. But, you know, look, in the end, people will either vote for her or they won't vote for her. That's the bottom line, and no pun intended. And, you know, I think um, she might lose a lot of independence over this. People will see that and say, look, I liked you for your policies. I was on board, but this to me is too much. I don't want a society that reels into this thinking that this is normal professional I mean, behavior. It's probably that inarguable that it was not a good, like, tactical, it was not smart that, tactical. But that seems ridiculous to me to I like a person's policies, either. policies, the actual ways in which you're trying to implement your life, a government official, and say, oh, but despite these policies that I like, you twerking, whoa, whoa, this is what you're teaching the police. I would, actually, I would say the same thing about the, the, the police. Probably twerking yeah. is like the least offensive yeah. thing the police. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to suspend them for violating my rights and harassing people and and writing oh, me a speeding yeah. ticket the other day. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. 66 and a 45. You know, I, I, I feel you, Robbie. I think we're in alignment here. Ticket. <laughs> uh, all right, Kim, thank you very much. We'll have more rising right after this. Celebrities Macy Gray and Bette Midler are being accused of being transphobic. Gray, who is best known for her hit song, I Try, received backlash for a comment she made during an appearance that aired Monday on Fox Nation's Pierce Morgan Uncensored after discussing the topic of trans athletes. And I, I will say this, and everybody's going to hate me, but as a woman, just because you go change your plots doesn't make you a woman. Right. Sorry. You feel that? I know that for a fact. Midler sparked controversy when she tweeted on Monday, women of the world, we are being stripped of our rights over our bodies, our lives, and even our name. They don't call us women anymore. They call us birthing people, our menstruators, and even people with vaginas. Don't let them erase you. Every human on earth owes you. Oh, Joe. 
They're going to be in trouble. Uh, I uh, agree with them. <laughs> no, personally. I agree with them too, but you can't say yeah. these kinds of things in certain progressive circles uh, at all. Look at J.K. Rowling. Look at you know any number of other uh, perfectly you know liberal people uh, on the issues. And then because they don't talk about uh, gender with the new language that's acceptable to a small number of deranged activists, you get, uh, you get yourself in trouble. And it happens time and time again. But uh, I, that was, I didn't know uh, Ma- Macy Gray uh, had that view. I guess I didn't know Bette Midler um, either. Uh, and ma- actually, Macy Gray was making the kind of stronger view, right? She was sort of denying um, the, the trans category entirely, whereas I, I guess Bette Midler was just objecting well, to the, 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 la- the, the way the language is used, which kind of everyone thinks is crazy. I don't but. think it's about denying the trans category. I mean, look, I, I have, I'm cult- totally and completely supportive of trans rights. And I am as well. I, so it's not about that. It's that it's a different category. Right. So, you know, I could support I could be supportive. I could say, you know, and I have trans friends that I am, am very support. I try to be supportive of as best as I can. Maybe I don't know. Maybe they would tell me I'm not because. But, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's trying to be supportive. It's saying, yes, I, I believe that you should have rights. Um, but you're not a woman in the same way that a biological woman is a woman. There's different experiences right. that we don't share. I don't know their struggles at all. I mean, besides the conversations I have with those that I've been friends with while they were trying to transition or thinking about coming out and all of that, I understand this. I've, I've heard the stories of the struggles, but I can't actually And they haven't had the same struggles that. you've had. Exactly. They can hear about it, but they don't know the exact way it is being a woman, being born a woman biologically and having to go through certain things. So they're just different categories, equally needing rights. Nobody's, I think, uh, wanting, maybe there's some people, but I'm not looking and you're not looking to rob them of any rights. We're wanting to extend rights, but at the same time, recognizing that there are different categories. I simply do not understand the need or investment to exclude them, period. This is just an imaginary oppression. This whole, oh, they're coming for us as women. You're a woman and your womanhood is unchallenged based on whether or not trans women are women too, or whether or not they want to be included or considered when we discuss women. Uh, a conversation about, you know, the language. Can't and- say the word woman. We can say the right. word women. You we can say the word really as, as the someone. Word. I don't know about the two of you, but as someone that is firmly in the leftist space with a leftist platform that knows all of the people that you consider crazies and deranged activists and progressives, you see me say women all the time. I talk about abortion. I say women. I say women's issues. We talk about that, and it's not a problem. So this idea that the entire community are just crazies, unhinged, that won't let you say women is not true. Are there are there some individuals outliers? Sure, absolutely. But what I think in general is trans people. The trans community does have. They are they are negative impacted their le- not recognizing their personhood exposes them to lots of danger we saw so much trans so much violence in the trans community specifically trans black women are killed at like four times the rate um of but other not women. because they're trans actually that is not that's not true actually not they're, they're not being killed because that's, of anti-trans bigotry they're yes. being killed because they're they're in sex work and 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 why what do you think Drug uh, again, we're not. We're not but it's not. No, trans not, women. I mean, I mean, that's still bad. That's still trans terrible. Women are exposed to no. There are lots of trans women that have very much so been killed based on men's anger at realizing what is their own sexual attraction to these women lots? and determining that they're trans. 
Robbie, if you want us, if you want you, if you want me to, I will, I will, I will, I will do us the favor of having a radar on it one day, right? But what I'm saying is, this is a community that is 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 uh, uh, negatively impacted. They are discriminated against, and I do not see how it hurts us. It harms us as women, as biological women, as cis women, to include them in our struggles and to not go out of our way to exclude them, to suggest oh how they're not women and to rob them of this person. It simply doesn't cost us anything. My woman's status is not affected. Kim's woman's status is not affected. So there's no need for Macy Gray, who no one has heard from other than that song and a terrible rendition of I the. I do Mac- like that song. And that's, yes, that it was. It was a long time ago. It was before I was told by it Ginger. Was a long time ago. Besides yeah. that song, the "As Told by Ginger" theme, theme song and a terrible well, I, rendition I, I, of the national well, anthem. I'm, most I'm recently, curious. no. Did you love what, the song? That's what. What no? What are your What are your thoughts on Leah Thomas? Leah Thomas is that is that the trans athlete? The swimmer. I, yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't have any. I don't have any problem with that. I don't. And I also. I, I want to say this. I think a lot of the criticisms, especially when you see people who didn't care at all about women's sports, don't. Don't care nothing about women's sports in general, even on a professional level, let alone on the school level or these lesser competitions. All of a sudden, they care so much about women's equality when it comes to excluding and speaking negatively about um, um, these trans athletes. And a lot of, and I will say this too, I saw a lot of positive support from other other girls and women that compete against her and compete in the arena that did not feel the need to go to these exclusionary routes. So I just think a lot of it is rooted in... <laughs> it's exclude. It's excluding people who have an who have an advantage because of their. But that, I've seen. I've first oh. of all. I've. I don't. I, I like to. I, I do myself the service of not pretending like I'm an expert on all things and like I have the language and stuff in front of me right now. But I have seen people that actually are and talk about science and stuff say that is not the case. But what I'm saying is I don't have a problem. And you know why? Right. Because me, like a lot of these people that comment on this, don't care nothing about these sports or anything. What is the motivation between all all of the hubbubaloo? I think the, the motivation is negative. So for well, me, I, I care, wh- and I know a lot of women who care. If you're if being feeling pressured to use the phrase birthing persons yeah, or menstruators, right. which is now something that elite elite is. dialogue is adapting. Is say, You see it appearing places. The you see the ACLU struggling with, with the even language to describe the people affected by curtailing of First abortion of all, rights. I just a disproportionately I wanna, LGBT. I want to say this. Disproportionately overall, LGBT. Overall, you very much so still seeing women's issues, things like abortion and stuff being discussed as a women's issue. That is the vast majority of people that are still discussing it in that way. But let's pretend I can concede to oh the language language pressures being pressured to use different language a more inclusive language for the for the for the positive impact of others and people in groups that you know are going through a negative experience in the community that is not oppression that is not going to kill you the idea that oh my god i like i have to say this language that might include these other kinds of women that's just not the worst doesn't thing doesn't that go both ways though because for, for the also the people for, who are saying no, because you have it, to call no, me a because, woman rather than a no, trans because woman no because they're explaining the same way y'all said earlier y'all don't know their struggles in their community. They've explained the way, and they talk about this ad nauseum, the way in which they are negatively impacted by us robbing them of this personhood or not engaging this language or insisting and excluding them, considering them as men, even though they're telling you they're women now. They are negatively impacted in them. So it's not just a feeling and a sentiment. It's different. And what I'm saying is for us... But I'm saying I think women are feeling that same sentiment. I don't of being think... De- of being deprived and I'm of saying, their rec- of recognition and I'm saying as having that, a uni- unique set of experiences. And I'm saying that that is not a real... I, I, don't, I don't think that I, well. that rises to the level... Of of what they're going through, I think what the what the 
what the cost is for for us as, as cis women, as biological women, what the cost is for us in using that language is not is does not outweigh what is the risk and what are the negative impacts of us not being inclusive. But nonetheless, I maintain that the majority of these issues are still being discussed as women's issues. It is not true that everywhere, oh, you have to use birthing language or birthing whatever, menstruators and all these things. It's just not the case. But that, that language is increasing in popularity right. and in usage. I mean, you and can't deny that. I've never seen it before in my life. And now the other day when I filled out a medical form, that's what it actually said in a medical document. It actually asked if I was a menstruating or birthing person. It didn't ask if I was a woman. So I do, and that was a, a legitimate lab. I've never seen that, but I don't see the problem with our society adapting to be more inclusive. I don't, I don't see what is the inherent issue with the fact that they are changing. find that language more inclusive. They find that right. language exactly. really. I think you're seeing, like, is the case, and, sci- and almost just like, like women are nothing but that is, they're, na- they're, they're kind of. It has I mean? never. It's very. It has never been the case in life that a marginalized group appears and starts speaking about their issues and advocating for different ways that we could respond to be more inclusive, that you don't see a large pushback. So it is not well, unsurprising. It's not unsurprising I, I mean, to me. I don't, and it, I don't know why we can't extend the boxes. Like, why can't it be male, female, trans male, trans female? Like, right. inters, you know, like, why does it? I don't understand. We can be inclusive what for is, sure. What, what, but, but, but also on the support side of that, what's the problem with them saying with, with, with trans women taking women? What does that do well, to you? I mean, listen, what, being somebody who's mixed race, for example, when I fill out race forms, I, they, I'm glad that now I see a lot of boxes. I'm no longer stuck with, am I either white or am I either Asian? That's the way it's been my entire life growing up. There was never mixed race as an option. Now there's mixed race as an option. So now I get to, I get to check more than, you know, I get to check either the mixed race box or more than, or they say check two if it applies to you. And, so, but, and that, but, but Kim, but in that example, you were talking about for you, you as a biracial person felt like you were being forced to choose this particular box when you would have appreciated having the option of choosing Expanded both or having that reflected. Boxes. But trans women, trans women are not there saying that they would like to be able to just be included in women. They want to be able to text the, the women box. And I'm saying, how does that harm me or you allowing trans women to do that? There, no, it doesn't. And I don't mm. think anybody's arguing exactly. that. If you identify as a woman and you want to check the box as woman, fine. The issue is with the language right. birthing person, menstruating right. person. And I'm saying that that that's is not where the mainstream. That is right. not the mainstream reality, and that's not being forced on everybody. It's just not true. I Y'all would like know. to think I, it, we, it's in some scenarios, and some you see it, but it is not the majority. It just isn't. It's we're not pretending the majority, we're taking but the outliers. It's a rising. It's a rising sentiment. It's a rising, it's a rising trend for sure. Well, we have one other uh, related topic we wanted to get to here. So actor and producer Elliot Page's uh, dead name appeared as a trending topic on Twitter on Tuesday, violating the site's own policy on hateful conduct. So a dead name is is the name a trans person used before coming out. So maybe that's a name from the other uh, gender, and it was listed under the site's trending tab. According to Twitter's hateful conduct policy, users are prohibited from targeting others with repeated slurs, tropes, or other content that intends to dehumanize, degrade, reinforce negative or harmful stereotypes about a protected category. This includes targeted or misgendering or dead naming of transgendered individuals. And this is where it gets kind of insane. Like, I don't even know. I assume everyone watching knows what Elliot Page's name was before I, I like i guess we should not say it because maybe that yes, would violate some know. policy it's a dead name that, i mean that's, that's crazy thing. why like, that's is totally it insane. Insane. why is that <laughs> why is that any I crazier mean, uh, than people change their name call me this Elliot, call me this i prefer to be called right, but, but not even 
abs- yeah, but to right. not even be allowed to acknowledge that you used to have a different name. What do you need to be able to acknowledge that for? What, how are you suffering? Where's your harm? Where's your oppression? That, that person lived as a different person for a long time, decades. And so to say that suddenly we all have to pretend like those decades didn't exist and that that person wasn't that person for those decades. You're not forced is, to, me to pretend that. Bit. You just can't. I, mean, I understand. You, that's what you just can't say it out loud? No, you can talk. Right, right, Why right, are we pretending crazy. like that is what's happening here? It's very simple. That this is person, there's, there's a trans man now, Elliot Page. That is their name. That sure, is the name that right. they go by. I, 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 used, their, I said their him, dead name and I said dead. Elliot Page. Exactly. Absolutely. Their dead but. name is their dead name. They don't go by that anymore. They find it dehumanizing or diminishing to their personhood to be called that. And that is what it is. It's not uncommon. People change their names all the time, and we use the different names that they, that they go by. Right, but then if somebody goes, well, who's that? I go, oh, they used to be X. I would fill them in. And you can't do that on social media because of this policy. Did you get banned from calling Prince Prince even after he changed his name to a symbol? I mean, that's where we're- we are comparing apples and Why vegetables be because be, I literally because this is a trans person. We've explained this. The name, the dead name reflects a person an identity. They do not recognize. They do not recognize. They find it uh, uh, psychologically harmful to be seen well, in that way. Prince they've moved too. on. I mean, maybe he right. felt like being called. Prince All right. Was I mean, we're I've explained it. Go ahead, listen, go, go ahead. Go forth. Go forth smartly. Go. I, I think it's not, I think it's a really weird for especially for a. For a, a famous person, a like a, a, a person of some notable public significance, to be dis, formally disallowed from talking about some public and no, we're, we're not You're saying not this is some embarrassing secret about that we're trying password. to spare them from. I mean, no, this is a public. This are, person was in movies. You are was, not, in, was under this name. It's under obviously this very identity. for. Let's not. Listen, for the dead name to trend, for something to trend, people have to use, be using it massively. It has to be being discussed. Let's not act like we don't know where that comes from. If we know that this is now a trans, a trans person, they go by Elliot Page, and there are a, a large amount of people calling them by their dead name, so much so that it trends, there is a deliberacy in there meant to offend this person because you know they do not go by that anymore. I don't know what is this big. If anyone was continuing to use it and not using the new name just to be you know, provocative or mean-spirited, right. I, mean, I guess I, I use right. I, I would use the name the person wants to use now, mm-hmm. and I would recognize their gender identity now. Mm-hmm. I, but I, 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 will, I, I do not think we should be for for a public person, for someone who is well known to the people, for like for sake of clarity or for sake of biography, mm-hmm. to acknowledge that they used to have a different name. You can acknowledge that. But you see how? But do you see how we we sat right. here and we had this whole discussion? We acknowledged that they used to have a different name. We acknowledged that they had this life before that, but we never called them the, the name. Well, no, it's that tiptoeing around it because of the rules. That simple. You're yeah, not, but you're not, not allowed. To. We had the whole conversation. <laughs> yes. It, what is the problem with that? You're not allowed to call somebody by a name that they don't go That's by anymore. Crazy. Big deal. We shouldn't no, it's not be not crazy. allowed. We shouldn't be not allowed to say what a person was for decades. God for God forbid you not be allowed to call somebody by something they don't want to go by anymore because because right. your, your right it, to call them what you want to call them to Trump, Trump their decided own. he just wanted to be called the greatest that. of all time we, we would we would just move over to that and be like well he we got to respect his it's wishes not, it's not the same but y'all, respect can, his wishes. y'all continuously want to y'all are clearly invested in pretending like y'all don't understand the significance no of i understand it I, and I, a dead name so go ahead go ahead i've already explained it all right well we've had we've had this one out so Tomorrow on Rising, my colleague from uh, Reason Magazine, Liz Wolf, will be back to discuss a controversial TikTok that led to the firing of the poster. This is the Bodega Bro story, if you missed that. I did miss it, but Liz Wolf has an excellent uh, write-up of it that she will talk to us about. Plus, our Rising panel will join to weigh in on the day's biggest news. 
So be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who want to listen while you're on the go, download our podcast. You can listen to us anywhere you find podcasts. All right, guys. Thanks so much for watching. Thanks for being here. And we will see you guys tomorrow. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.